Uh, Good morning, everyone. The first reading this morning is Esther chapter 8, the whole thing, so 1 to 17. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, Let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadath of the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have hanged him on the gallows. Now write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. They wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews to enter the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them uh, them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do all this in the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, riding the royal horses, raced out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was also issued in the citadel of Susa. Mordecai left the king's presence wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of fine linen and the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour. In every province and in every city, wherever the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Uh, Please stand and we're going to sing. Hello again. The second reading is Esther. Again, uh, this time chapters 9 and 10. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. 
The Jews assembled in their cities and all the provinces of King Xerxes to attack those seeking their destruction. No one could stand against them because the people of all the other nationalities were afraid of them. And all the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. Mordecai was prominent in the palace. His reputation spread throughout the provinces and he became more and more powerful. The Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them. And they did what they pleased to those who hated them. In the citadel of Susa, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. They also killed Parshendatha, Delphon, Aspartha, Paratha, Adalia, Aradatha, Parmashta, Arasai, Aradai, and Visatha, the ten sons of Haman, son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. But they did not lay their hands on the plunder. <clears throat> the number of those slain in the citadel of Susa was reported to the king that same day. The king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and the ten sons of Haman in the citadel of Susa. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It will be given you. What is your request? It will also be granted. If it pleases the king, Esther answered, give the Jews in Susa permission to carry out this day's edict tomorrow also, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on gallows. So the king commanded that this be done. An edict was issued in Susa, and they hanged the ten sons of Haman. The Jews in Susa came together on the 14th day of the month of Adar, and they put to death in Susa 300 men, but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Meanwhile, the remainder of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also assembled to protect themselves and get relief from their enemies. They killed 75,000 of them, but did not lay their hands on the plunder. This happened on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. The Jews in Susa, however, had assembled on the 13th and 14th, and then on the 15th they rested and made it a day of feasting and joy. That is why rural Jews, those living in villages, observe the 14th of the month of Adar as a day of joy and feasting, a day for giving presents to each other. Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews agreed to continue the celebration they had begun, doing what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pur, that is the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head and that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore these days uh, were called Purim from the word Pur. Because of everything written in this letter, and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them, the Jews took it upon themselves to establish the custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them should without fail observe these two days every year 
in the way prescribed and at the time appointed. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never cease to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of them die out among their descendants. So Queen Esther, daughter of Abihail, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm the second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Xerxes, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to their times of fasting and lamentation. Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai to which the king had raised him, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jesse. Uh, Well, good morning, everyone. Nice to see some of you here this morning. Uh, And welcome if you're joining online as well. Uh, Why don't we pray before we uh, take a look at these chapters. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, these three chapters in the book of Esther. Uh, There's there's a lot here. Uh, So we pray that you would help us uh, to hear what you would have us hear this morning. Please use this morning uh, to conform us to your image, Lord, to make us more like your son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as Jay mentioned, today we reach the end of our series in Esther. Uh, and I've, I've really loved looking at the book and I've, I've loved hearing a bit about how you've been uh, encouraged as well uh, through our time in it. And I'm aware that uh, some people haven't been able to watch online over the last few weeks, so let me briefly run through what's happened so far. Uh, we're in the heart of the Persian Empire, the city of Susa, King Xerxes is ruling, uh, and the queen is a Jewish lady named Esther, and her cousin is a man named Mordecai, a Jewish man who had basically raised Esther as his own daughter. Now, a lot of the tension in the book comes because Mordecai had refused to bow down before one of the king's highest nobles, a man named Haman. Now, Haman was absolutely furious, uh, so he comes up with this plan, not just a plan to kill Mordecai, but a plan to kill all the Jews, all of God's people in the whole of the Persian Empire. Haman wrote a law stating that on the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews could be murdered. Now Mordecai, uh, when he heard about this, pleaded with Esther to ask the king to spare the lives of, the, of her people. And after some persuasion, uh, she, she finally agrees. And last week, she went to the king, she explained that she was a Jew and that Haman had planned to kill her and her people. And the king was understandably outraged by this. He found out Haman had planned to hang Mordecai that very day, and instead he has Haman hanged. 
Crisis averted. Mordecai is alive. Esther's alive. But Haman's law is still hanging over the heads of God's people. In nine months' time, on that day, people will still be allowed to kill the Jews. See, Haman may be dead, but his plan lives on. And so that's the tension that we pick up uh, as we pick up in chapter 8. The Queen Esther once again uses her power to try and help God's people. She falls at the king's feet and she weeps and she begs for help. But we've seen over the previous weeks that the king's law can't be changed once it's in writing. And so Haman's plot to kill the Jews can't just be overturned. So the king suggests to them that they come up with a new law. So all the royal secretaries, they're summoned. But the challenge is coming up with a law that will actually stop God's people from being slaughtered. That's the dilemma. And so Mordecai, he writes a law that allows the Jewish people to get together uh, when that day comes to protect themselves. And at that point you think, is that the best law that he could have come up with? Surely he could have done more. Maybe he'd make a good politician. To kill, but, but look at the wording he uses in verse 11 to describe what the Jews can do. To destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder their property, the property of their enemies. Destroy, kill, and annihilate. Maybe not the first words that we'd associate with God's people. But the exact words that Haman used against the people of God in chapter 3. Words that brought despair. Words that brought misery. Now words that offered God's people some hope. So the message is delivered across Persia, 127 provinces and translated into many languages. And when the message spreads through Susa, look at how the people react. Verse 15. The whole city holds a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy and gladness and honour. And it's the same across the whole empire. They are feasting, celebrating. Uh, And it's quite amazing because Haman's law is still in place. They might still be killed, but they celebrate as if they've already won. This, This glimmer of hope is all that they need. And a key verse is eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 17. The Jews are feasting and celebrating, and many people of other nationalities become Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Now, we don't like to be driven by fear, but there can be a right fear of things, can't there? These people see where things are heading. It's as if they know that God's people will be victorious. And so they choose to join the people of God. Despite the attraction of the empire, they are drawn to God through these people. And so that's chapter 8. And then nine months go by. And by the time we get to chapter 9, the day has finally arrived. The 13th day of the 12th month. The month of Adar. Two laws, both agreed to by the king, finally able to be enacted. The enemies of the Jews are ready to strike. But now the Jews are able to defend themselves and fight back. Uh, And the author makes it clear in verse 1 that things have swung in the Jews' favour. Look at uh, verses 2 and 3 as well. No one could stand against them because the people of all nationalities were afraid of them. 
all of the nobles of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and the king's administrators helped the Jews because fear of Mordecai had seized them. All these powerful people are backing them. They're afraid because of what they saw happen to the guy who tried to stand against Mordecai and his people. Uh, And in that sense, Haman is the gift that just keeps on giving. And we see why uh, why the Jews are confident. In verse 5, they strike down their enemies. They kill 500 men in the city of Susa. And they also go on to kill the 10 sons of Haman. Now there's every chance that they wanted revenge for their father's death. But the Jews make sure that that doesn't happen. They don't take any of the plunder. Now once again, the king's eager to please Esther and he asks her if she wants anything. Uh, and her response is, is quite shocking. Uh, in fact, it's, it's alarming. She asks for more blood to be spilled. Verse 13. She asks for an extra day to kill all the enemies of the Jews. And it gets worse. Uh, Esther also asks for the ten sons of Haman, who are already dead, to be hanged on the gallows. It's an it's a incredibly disturbing response from the queen. Why was this extra brutality necessary? More killings. The hanging of, of people who are already dead. Uh, a lot of people view Esther's actions here as a sign that she's lost her way. The power finally got to her. Uh, and it's, it's possible. But another reason could be the threat that still remained for the Jews. See, it seems that Esther knew there were more men alive who hated the Jewish people. Haman would have had huge support in Susa. That was his, his hometown. With those men still alive, there was a chance that there was still a threat to the Jews. And so maybe her actions removed that threat. And maybe the hanging of Haman's sons showed how powerless Haman really was. Well, whatever the reason, the author doesn't actually give us much more than telling us what happened. So it's hard for us to be certain of Esther's motives. Uh, And so we need to be a little bit cautious before we condemn her. Either way, the king agrees to her request, surprise, surprise, uh, and on the 14th day of the month, they put to death another 300 men in the city of Susa. And Haman's sons are hanged, just as Esther requested. But once again, none of the plunder is taken. And we find out that uh, around the various provinces of Persia, uh, the Jews have killed about 75,000 of their enemies. 75,000. But they don't take any of the plunder. And we'll, we'll talk about the killing in a moment. But notice verse 16 is the third time that we see that phrase but they did not lay their hands on the plunder. Uh, And this is something that was common in the Old Testament, even in the book of Genesis. It's this idea of holy war. God's people acting as his instruments of judgment. See, when this happened, his people weren't to have any personal gain or, or profit for themselves because they were acting on God's behalf. And at times, uh, God's people failed to do this rightly. We see that in, in other parts of the Old Testament. They take up some of the plunder for themselves and they end up facing God's judgment. Uh, If you you wanted to look at an example, you could go to Joshua 7 uh, another time. But but here in Esther, it tells us three times that the people could have taken the plunder but chose not to. They're bringing judgment on God's behalf, which is very different uh, to the call 
on Christians today. See, we're not called to enact God's judgment in this way. It's not our place to take vengeance on God's behalf or or to take other people's lives. Now, perhaps the ambiguity around Esther's ethics uh, and her decisions reminds us why we're not the ones who bring about God's justice. See, the Bible doesn't shy away from the fact uh, in telling us that some of the greatest leaders were, were tainted by sin. Some had terrible flaws. And so it shouldn't surprise us uh, that we, not even God's leaders necessarily, aren't called to bring about God's judgment. We leave that to the one whose motives are never ambiguous. Jesus, the one who knows the hearts of all people, the one who will one day come and perfectly enact God's judgment. So we leave that to him. Now, back to these killings. Uh, The Jews ended up killing their enemies, and they go on to celebrate this victory. And there are a number of lives lost here. And it makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable that there's this widespread killing, and the response is joy. There are two things that that keep this response in perspective. The first is to remember that they're only killing their enemies who attack them first. And the second thing, and, and perhaps more important, is the fact that these people had nine months to change their minds. They knew that God's people would be able to defend themselves, and yet they still went ahead and tried to kill them. Such was their hatred towards the people of God. The Jews survive, and so they celebrate. And Mordecai writes to the Jews in all the provinces, and in verse 22, we see the reason they celebrate on the 14th and 15th days of the year. Because this was the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning to celebration. And these days of remembrance and celebration came to be known as Purim. And then finally, we get to chapter 10, uh, which is really a tribute to Mordecai for all he was able to do. He's at the, the peak of his powers. All of Haman's power is now in the hands of Mordecai. Uh, and I wonder if you noticed the change as we went through those ch- three chapters. Uh, look at uh, verse 8-2. Mordecai is given the king's signet ring and also Haman's estate. 8-15. He's given royal garments and a, uh, a large gold crown and a robe, uh, which is quite the change from the sackcloth and ashes that he wore in chapter 4. 9-3. All the other rulers in the empire fear him. 9-4. He's prominent in the palace his reputation spreads and he becomes more and more powerful. 9.29, he writes with full authority to the provinces. And then these great words in chapter 10. A remarkable turnaround, uh, reflecting a mo- remarkable story. And so we've, we've come to the book of Esther, this gripping book. And the first thing these chapters do is that they invite us to remember. Look back in order to help us look forward. Observe, remember, never cease to celebrate. Uh, those are some of the words encouraging remembrance in these, uh, in these verses. This passage would have been a, a great encouragement and comfort to the original readers. Not because it meant that God would always protect them uh, from their enemies or, or spare their lives. In fact, it would almost be naive to think, to, to think that. Because we know there there are times where God's people were killed at the hands of their enemies. And there have been many Christian martyrs throughout history. 
The reason it's a comfort is because this small rescue anticipates an even greater rescue that would come years later. As God's people remembered these days, it gave them hope around what God would do in the future. And that was reason to rejoice. And as Christians today, we do a similar thing, don't we? We look back at the way that God has acted. We remember the change of power that takes place at the cross. The Son of God, seemingly powerless as he hangs there, and yet defeating sin and death as a result. Jesus, now seated at God's right hand, all authority in heaven on earth, in heaven and on earth given to him. See, it's at the cross that we remember God's love for us. And as we look back at the cross, it reminds us that one day Jesus will return and take his people home. He is the reason that we will be spared God's judgment on that final day. Uh, looking back also gives us assurance of what lies ahead. Our relationship with God is secure. And remembering leads to rejoicing. Uh, I wonder if you notice joy is mentioned uh, a number of times, I think eight times in these chapters. You might have, been, uh, you might have seen during the week there was a, a three-year-old boy who went missing in the bush in Australia uh, for three days. Uh, unfortunately, they, they found him alive and well. Uh, but there's this footage of the family's reaction when they hear the news that, that he's been found. And they just can't contain their relation, their joy and their gratitude. And we have something of immeasurable value in Christ. These chapters invite us to rejoice as we remember God's love for us. It's good for us to think about whether looking back and knowing what lies ahead is bringing us joy. Or have we lost sight of those two things, the cross uh, and what lies ahead? Well, as we close, uh, we've seen over the past weeks that God's name isn't, isn't mentioned at all in the book of Esther. Uh, and I think one of the reasons is that in life we go through unsure of the exact details of how God is at work. So he tells us some of his plans uh, in his word, but he doesn't tell us every detail of how, we'll, how, how he will act, what he's going to teach us in, in every moment, or the reason why things happen the way they do. And it can make you wonder at times, is God even there? And maybe that's a question you've asked in life. Where is God when, when this unexpected thing happens? When this person wrongs me? When there's painful discouragement uh, in areas of my life? Where is God? Well, if you were a Jew uh, in the Persian Empire, there's no doubt that that question would have crossed your mind. And I think the, the book of Esther is presented to us in a way that actually reflects what the Christian life can be like. God's people, foreigners in this empire, out of place, unsure of what will happen today or tomorrow or the next day, and yet able to take confidence in knowing that the hidden hand of God is at work, surely bringing about his purposes. God's people were left to trust him, uh, and we're invited to do the same, to find our hope in him. But there's also a, a small warning here, because if we see where this world is heading, if we know how things will end, but we choose to reject God, uh, like the enemies of the Jews did, then we too uh, will face 
that same judgment. So the call of this book is to trust in the one who came to save. Uh, Let me pray that we would do that. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for our time in this uh, book of Esther. Father, we pray that you would help us uh, to be those who remember, uh, who rejoice, and who trust you as we look forward uh, to that day when you will return. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.